If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. And today we're going to talk to the bloke who was the captain of the Perth Wildcats for the first 11 years of their existence. Joining me in the studio, Mike Ellis. Mike, welcome. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me in. So, mate, let's go back to the beginning. Why was it basketball for you? Yeah, I, I started, I, and I didn't start till late. So I was pretty, I was 13 so pretty much high school, really, uh, which is late these days. Most of the kids are playing at six. Um, I did a little bit of swimming. I suppose I was a little overweight, so I floated fairly well. So that worked worked well for the swimming side of things. So I've been a little overweight, and I didn't float. Well. <laughs> it's not, it's not that simple. Yeah, too many heavy things in your pocket, mate. <laughs> so um, so I did that, but then a lot of my mates were playing basketball, so um, I started doing that. I was absolutely useless. I think the first game I ever played, I fouled out in the first four minutes. Um, but that was because no one told me that, you know, when I had to get the ball, I had to get away from people that were in the way. So I just went and got it and, uh, I got five fouls in like, you know, three minutes or whatever it was. So, uh, but I really enjoyed it. A lot of fun. Um, my younger brother, Glenn, he was playing as well. Um, so yeah, we just, we just enjoyed it. Um, tennis, my father wanted me to play tennis cause he could play tennis. He was a state tennis and squash player. Um, but the ball was too small. I haven't got great eyes, so I figured I'd go with the basketball. It's nice and big. I can see it. So you mentioned your father being a tennis player and a squash player. He ended up being a renowned coach. Um, what got him to to turn his attention to basketball? Yeah, well, he always said to all of us, because I've got the three brothers, so there's four of us, and he always, his rule was, you're going to play a sport. I don't care what it was, you pick it, um, but you're going to play a sport because he knows all the various values that you learn from playing sport. Uh, he wanted us to play tennis uh, because it was easier. Um, I actually started playing basketball, got involved, went fairly well early, made a under-16 state team, and we went to Queensland to play over there. Mum and Dad drove over to watch us play. Um, and after the tournament, Dad looked at it and went, I think I can coach at this level because <laughs> um, he looked around at all the other coaches from the States and our, and our team and all that sort of stuff and went, yeah, I'll do that. So he decided that he'd get involved. and. He then started to study anybody that had any knowledge about basketball whatsoever, any American visiting coach that came over. He would uh, just seek them out, pick their brains, work out what they did. Um, and, and he just started to learn from there and ultimately ended up coaching the Wildcats, which is a pretty fair effort given that he never played the game and never took it up until, you know, late in life. What was the landscape like for a young basketballer in Western Australia back in those days before the... The Wildcats were even a twinkle in someone's eye. Yeah, there wasn't any landscape, mate. It was, <laughs> it was a bit like the uh, the Nullarbor, mate, and there's not much on it. A couple of tumbleweeds <laughs> here or there, and that's about it. 
Um, yeah, but there was a few people that played. There was a quite a junior competition. There was a um, state competition, so which was called district back in those days. Um, and it was fairly strong, quite a lot of people playing, but there was no money. There was no advertising. There was no interest. There was certainly no media coverage or anything like that. Um, but you know, that's not what we were doing it for. We were doing it because we just love to play and, uh, that's why we got involved. How did the sport develop? Was there were Americans came over and had input and, and, and had, were able to take the sport forward further forward or? No, there was a little bit of that, um, at the district level. So right now, uh, there's, they've got different competitions, but back in those days, there was a junior state team that you would play with. There was a senior state team, which they never, they don't have anymore. Um, because of the NBL one, but the senior state team, we would play in the senior state team, but they also had what they call us an Australian club championships. So whoever won the local competition in all the States would all go to Victoria and play in a national competition. So we were playing for Sterling back then. Dad was coaching. Uh, we went over there and we ended up, we were an underdog. The highest any other WA team had finished was eighth in that competition. Uh, we got into the grand final. So that put us on the map. And then we ended up losing that to a team that was full of um, teams that were kind of had a number of imports in them. Um, so we came back and then basically that was the impetus. They started talking about the NBL. Mm. So that was in 79 and, and the NBL had only just started in 79. And we sort of went, well, we should be involved in this because if we can play at that level, at club level, um, at that sort of um, – ability to be able to compete, um, we reckon we can do it. So dad sort of started to push that whole MBL scenario and him with, you know, the help of the guys from basketball WA really started to get there. And that's what we wanted to try and do. What sort of coach was your dad? He was a player's coach. He was a player's coach. He was hard, but he was fair. You know, that was the thing. Um, he didn't take any rubbish. Um, he coached me and, you know, you would have spoken to many people that were coached by their fathers or were fathers that coached their kids. And there's two types. There's either the ones that favor the hell out of their kids um, or they're the ones that are harder on their kids because they expect more from them. Well, he was the latter, mm. um, which, which is fine by me. I was okay with that. That wasn't a problem. So, um, but the upside was we could go home and talk about it at home too. Yeah. What sort of player were you back in those days? Um, I was actually a very offensively minded player back then. Um, I was probably one of the strongest players in the, in the local competition here. Uh, I was able to score pretty well. Um, on the back of us going over and making the grand final in the, in the Australian championships, the Australian club championships, I got recruited to go and play in Melbourne. So I went and played for a club called Chelsea over there. So I went over in 79 and 80. And the reason I went over was that I was told at that stage that if I ever wanted to make an Olympic team, I had to be in Melbourne mm. because they wouldn't look at anyone outside of W uh, outside of Victoria and possibly New South Wales. So I decided I'd take up the offer and went and played over there. Um, we went over there. We won two national championships, um, in the Victorian basketball association. So that was pretty good. It was the first time that club had won it. So I was the only new guy into that team. Whether that had any impact on it, I don't know, but um, just coincidence, but it, it worked out pretty well. Um, and playing in Victoria, Victoria was the mecca of basketball at that stage. Mm. We were pretty good over here, but, you know, they were just, they had, every game you played was tough. So going over there just really improved my game as well. 
I always remember growing up and, and hearing about a team, the Nana Wadding Spectres. Yes. Like, it's like, I'm thinking, where yep. the bloody hell's Nana Wadding? Yep. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, there's an interesting story to that one too, Mark, that the Spectres, they had a, um, a logo and their logo was a Spectre, so a ghost, right, yep. which had the shape and all that, but the shape was like a, a pointed head. They went and toured in the US and they toured in the South. And of course, they oh. had to take their logo off because yes. it looked like the Ku Klux Klan logo. <laughs> right. So they could have been in some serious trouble if they had to kept the logo the way it was, but that was never their intent. That wasn't the, it was a spectre. That was the thing, but it would have been taken the wrong way over there. So it could have been pretty bad for them. When did you know that there was going to be a Perth-based team in a national basketball league? So I was still in Melbourne in 1980. Um, the word was that we were going to get in in 81. Now, I had offers to play for other NBL teams in the East Coast, but my view was always that I wanted to represent WA in the NBL. I didn't want to play for any other club. So I came back end of 80 for us to be in the team, uh, in the competition in 81. Uh, that fell over. It didn't actually happen. So I was pretty disappointed about that, but we were pretty much guaranteed it would happen in 82. And it w- did. Was there an NBL in 81 and the, yeah. and the Wildcats weren't in? Yes, yep. absolutely. Yep. Um, so the NBL started in 79. There was only four teams, but then in 80, there was eight teams. In 81, there was about 12 or 14 teams. 82, then ended up being 16 teams. So mm-hmm. we were the other ones that came in. And how exciting was that to, to come from the humble beginnings that you'd seen in basketball over here to get to that stage? Yeah, it was, was fantastic. It was quite surreal. I remember the very first game we played, which was at Perry Lakes, which no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Perry Lakes, there was about uh, 800 seats there, and I reckon we had probably 1,200 people in there. There was no fire worries about that back in those days. Um, this, this really interesting part about that was when I came out to warm up, I looked around the crowd, and – I could almost name everybody in that crowd yep. because that's what the sport was. It was such a family type thing. Even if, if you played against someone else or they played for another team, you still knew who they were. And after the game, most times you're friends, sometimes you're not, but you know, you knew, you knew everybody there. And that was, that was a really interesting thing for me. So it was its own little community basically. Very much. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, and they came out to support us. That's who was there. The people that loved basketball and for us to be in the NBL, you know, and we played a, a very powerful uh, Geelong Supercats who kicked our butt by 30, but that's okay. We were all right with that. It was the first game and yeah, it was just, just surreal to be part of that. That would have been down on that end court, wouldn't it, where the where they had the seats along one side of the yep. court? Court one. Yep. yep. Court one. Why were they called the West State Wildcats? Well, clearly because we're the West State, but how did yep. how did someone come up with that name? Well, there was a competition that was um, put out there to name the team. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of the Wildcats was an option. Um, but that was ultimately the one that was selected was the West State Wildcats. I mean, the, the first coach, Henry Daigle, reckons it was his, but I, I refute that anyway. Um, but the West State was because we were technically the West Australian state senior men's team. Right. With a couple of imports. Yep. So the Wildcats got picked as a name and then it was West State Wildcats. And that's kind of how it came. We'll take a break and we'll be back with more of inspiring sports stories after the break. We're brought to you by Bauer and Doday. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. 
Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you, Bauer and O'Day. And we're talking to Mike Ellis, the former captain of the Perth Wildcats, one of the uh, the founding fathers, I would say, of the of the sport in WA and one of the people behind the basketball boom in Western Australia. So let's go through the early years at the Wildcats. You were the inaugural captain, is that That's right? That's correct, yep. At 23 years of age? 23, the ripe old age of 23, exactly. So what, was, what was that like, being the on-field leader at 23? Yeah, it was it was an honour, obviously. Um, it was part of the, as I said, the state team stuff. I was, I was still, even though I had a number of older players uh, around the place, um, I was kind of one of the captains in that, or one of the leaders in that, and I think that was the natural progression, and Henry Daigle was the one that decided that, that he thought that would be the, the best thing to happen for me to be an on-court leader. I wasn't, I think I was an okay captain to start with. Um, and I think being a captain is a really tough, tough thing. And a lot of people just pay lip service to it, but there's a lot more responsibility around it. And I didn't realize that. And I don't know that I did until probably halfway through the season where I started to realize that there's more to it than just having that, you know, the captain name at the end of your, your Mm. name. And it was more about the things that you had to do, not necessarily on court. You needed to do that to lead, but it was the off-court stuff and how you help the rest of the team and become one. And, uh, you know, you needed to do that to survive and, and to, to be successful. So I was just out of school at this stage and, and probably just making my way in working life. So I remember the Wildcats, but I remember them being sort of something of a curiosity as opposed to a mainstream thing. Is that how you felt at the time? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, to give you an idea, Mark, when we first started, my family was still paying to get in the door. Right. I'm the captain of the Wildcats yeah. and they're paying to come in. You know, we didn't get paid. I was still working full time. And so were a number of the other players. So what job were you doing at that time? I was in my family business, the business my father had uh, run and his father had done, and I'm a, I was a wall plasterer. So I've got a trade behind me, which not too many people these days can say, but I've got a trade. So I was a wall plasterer. And if you know anything about the building trade, between a wall plasterer, a brickie, and a grano worker, they are without doubt the three most difficult and most physically challenging jobs in the building industry. <laughs> and we were doing that. So I would work you know, we'd get up at five, we'd work from sort of six through till about probably four or five in the afternoon. And then I'd go and train for three hours that afternoon, that evening. And we do that three times a week as far as training goes. So it wasn't all that glamorous. I've got to tell you, it was, uh, it was hard damn work, you know? Um, and part of the reason we got into the MBL in the first instance was that no one wanted to come to WA cause it was so damn far away. So we had a caveat on us from the MBL, which we had to pay. And remember, this is an 82, 45 grand per year for the first three years over and above what everyone else had to pay. And that was to subsidize the teams to come and play us. So we had to do that. And then we would also play triple headers. So we'd fly out, um, probably on the Friday afternoon or Friday, play Friday night. You'd travel to another city, play Saturday night, travel to another city, play Sunday afternoon, and then fly back Sunday night. And then I'd have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go plastering the next day. That was pretty tough. The trouble was when your boss is your old man, it's pretty hard to say, oh, I'm a bit crook. I'm not coming in. So, <laughs> you know, get your ass out of bed. Let's go. Um, so that was, that was tough, but that's what we had to do. But you know what? We did it willingly because just being involved in the NBL was such a thrill for us. 
how much character did that build amongst the team and, and, and amongst WA basketball? One, that's a familiar story, the WA team entering a national competition and being made to jump hurdles that other teams didn't have to jump. Yeah. Um, it's kind of... I know we have a bit of a chip on the shoulder over here, but there, sometimes there's reasons for it, isn't well, there? Well, it's well justified, I think, in t- yeah. <laughs> at times. So, yeah, that was that was always a um, a bit of a motivating motivating factor for us. Um, as far as the guys go, that was was really character building, no question about it. But we also had the other side of it, where we would have the imports that would come in, so they'd bring in some imports, and those guys were getting paid. Yeah. And our argument was always. I'm, I'm fine with you bringing in imports and paying them if they're better than us. Yep. But when half the Australian players are doing more than what the imports are doing, then I've got a serious question. <laughs> I yep. want to know what the hell's going on here. How come they're getting paid and we're doing the work? So, you know, I look back at that time and I wouldn't change it for the world, but there was no money. I was working full time as were a number of the other players. I would have killed to be able to train during the day go and lift weights. Although I was a plasterer, I didn't need to lift weights, but, but you get my drift. I, I, I would have been able to go down and get up 500 shots a day, yep. you know, and you think back to that. And, and that was pretty much for my entire career other than maybe the last couple of years of it. And I look back at that and think, what would I have been able to do if I was able to do all that extra work, you know, on your game, which you never did. We did it as a part-time, mm. you know, that it wasn't a fully professional job. You know, like I said, I wouldn't ever change it, but you, you look back and think, oh, I wonder if I could have shot the ball better or I could have been better at this or done that. Um, but we just never had the opportunity, you know, three nights a week you'd train and then you play on the weekends. So the early years were a struggle, weren't they? You, yep. you finished bottom once or twice. You were sort of, um, it, it was pretty tough going, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we weren't, uh, we never finished bottom. So I'll correct you on that one, Sorry. which was, was good because, you know, that was obviously one of our goals, but we never, we were always in the negative. So we were, we always lost more than we won. Yeah. Right. Which is, which is a worry. So I think, uh, the last year, which was 86, we ended up 500. So we went 16 and 16. And, uh, that was, that was the year where we just missed out on the playoffs. Mm. Um, but that was, that was the impetus for where we started to get going. Your dad coached for a couple of years. That's an amazing achievement, really, to come yep. from the from the background you said that he ends up being a, an NBL coach. What sort of coach was he when he got to the top level? Still a players coach? Yeah, he was. He was still a players coach. Um, probably tougher then because, uh, you know, you had imports and different things who had egos and you're dealing with egos. And, and I think anybody that has coached at a professional level understands that it's 90% people management and 10% X's and O's. It really is. That's what it's about. If, if you can get the players to play for you and you've seen any number of teams, pick any sport, you know the teams that are playing for that coach, right? You know those players that want to play for that coach and you know that that coach is a great coach. He might not even be great technically, but he can get the best out of those players because they respect him and they'll listen to him. And you can also see the coaches that struggle because the players have no respect for them. And dad was one of those that had the utmost respect of any player that he coached, even the new guys, the imports coming in. It was just automatic. It was just something that he, he just got, he, he didn't command it. But if you understand when I say command, I don't mean he commanded it personally. It just came to him. It's just the way it was. 
Did you have any imports that did pay their way? That's you know via performance that were that were value for money. Yeah, the very first guy we had, a guy by the name of Tim Evans, came in. He was he was fantastic. He was a great player. But then in the second year, um, <laughs> he uh, and that was the year that Dad was coaching. Um, his first year of coaching. Tim said, "Look, he he rang Dad up halfway through the season. And said, listen, I've got some." issues, family issues, I've got to fly home. So he just disappeared. Mm. The next day we had the authorities come around to training looking for Tim. So apparently he was running some form of a uh, bit of trade throughout the NBL, um, which was interesting, right. which we were <laughs> unaware of. Um, so, so yeah, we never saw Tim again. Um, apparently they chased him around America for a while and they kept just missing him or whatever, but uh, he was he was a good player up until then. Um, so uh, we had the other guy we had uh, originally was a guy that was supposed to be uh, 6'8 and could jump like a gazelle. He, he got here, he was about 6'5 and nailed to the floor, you know, he just <laughs> like, but, but back then there was no YouTube clips. There was yep. none of that. If you wanted to recruit word mouth, someone, basically. word of mouth, they might send you a VHS tape that would take six weeks to get here by ship. Yep. And then you'd watch it and it's only highlights. And, you know, when I was coaching and, and recruiting, anybody that sent me just a highlight film, I just threw it straight in the bin. Right. Like, if you can't let me see your whole game, then clearly you've got a problem. Towards the late 80s, you get the feeling that the tide was starting to turn. Had the team built a following by this stage, a, an increased following? Yeah, so it was 87 was really the impetus for, for what we did. In 86... We had a guy by the name of Bob Williams, who was, um, uh, his company was called Interstruct back then. He built the PMH. Mm -hmm. His company built PMH. He was a supporter. He was a sponsor, right? So um, he did that. Um, he basically, and this will work for all your older listeners, but not the younger ones. Um, he was a bit like the Remington man. So he liked the company so much he bought it. So he was heavily involved and, and came and watched the trainings and would come into the locker rooms after games and all that. And that was the year we went 500. Yeah. So he just thought this is really good. So he ended up buying the company off Basketball WA because it was run just by the association and they didn't have the funds. They didn't have anything like that. So after Bob bought the business, I went to his house and we sat down for a couple of hours and he said, what do we need to do? So I gave him my views on what we thought we needed to do. The first one was open your checkbook. Um, because we need to get some imports in here that can really play. Um, and that's where it started. So he did some looking around, we got some recruits in and, uh, and then there was a lot of work that went into really building up and getting a following though, but we had to get the people in, in the first instance to get the players in. And once we did that, that's when it started. We'll take another break and we'll come back to talk about the basketball boom in Western Australia that took place in the late 1980s and early 1990s. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories, brought to you by Bauer and O'Day. And we're talking to Mike Ellis, the inaugural captain of the Perth Wildcats, or the West State Wildcats as they were known originally. And we're up to a stage in history where the Wildcats are about to take off and really probably take the WA sporting landscape by storm. Mike, 
the arrival of Kelvin Bruton. Tell us about that. <laughs> the Black Pearl. Yeah. So so Cal was one of the ones that they that Bob recruited. Um, so there was there was Cal, there was um, James Crawford, there yeah. was Tiny Pinder. Um, we had a couple of other guys over, Steve Davis, Alan Black um, as well. And Cal came in as a coach. Um, and, and Cal bought in a – look, marketers could take a, a hell of a lot of leaves out of, of Cal's book. He was the consummate marketer. He was just unbelievable. I mean, the old cliche of a fridge to an Eskimo, he was definitely that. Mm. Um, and he bought in the whole scenario of – our first season was run and stun and have some fun. Yep. So what he wanted to do, he bought the entertainment element to the game. So from a purist point of view, it's like, what's all this rubbish? But from a crowd point of view, they loved it. And we moved from Perry Lakes to the, um, what is called Challenge Stadium now. Well, I think it was the Claremont Superdrome, wasn't it? It was the Superdrome, exactly right. Not many people remember the Superdrome, yeah. but it's it's now called Challenge Stadium. But uh, we moved in there and I remember we went there for a training session. I walked in and went, how the hell are we going to fill this? You know, mm. 5,000 people, you've got to be kidding me. But we did a lot of work around it and, um, game one, it was sold out, mm-hmm. sold out. And that was in 87, but it didn't just happen. There was a huge amount of work. Cal did a lot of stuff. We went out, started to have basketball hoops at shopping centers where we get kids to come in and shoot. And people were looking at us the first time we did it for the first half a dozen, uh, half a dozen times we did it. People were looking at us like, what the hell is this stuff? We didn't even know. They didn't even know what basketball was. Anyway, after a while, that really built up and we started to do that. We started to get more following. Uh, we'd go to country places and I know you're a country boy, so we'd go and play in country towns and, and all that sort of stuff. And by doing that, we just really did a lot of work um, and into schools at promoting the club. And then come day one, we'd started to get this following. But you had to also, um, you had to also perform. So we had to be good and we were, we were very exciting to watch. So it was a, that whole entertainment package. It wasn't just a basketball game. And that really started to capture the imagination of the, of the Perth public. It was fantastic. So you've been the captain, you're still the captain now. What was it like that whole change of land? And you've got, I mean, James Crawford was my favorite player, yes. the, the Alabama slammer. Yep. And, um, and someone like that, I'd, I'd turn on the TV just to watch, just to watch the Alabama Slammer play. So yeah. it must have been just an extraordinary change in the environment. It was. It was fantastic. And to have players like that where you knew that, you know, you could throw the James the ball, you just anywhere near the rim, mm-hmm. and he would just grab it and dunk it, you know. And, and he was spectacular. He was he was one of the best athletes I've ever seen. He was he was awesome. His The only reason he didn't play in the NBA is he, he had – his hands were on backwards. He didn't have great hands. Um, and you talk about footballers or basketballers having good hands and you know, they're the guys that you just throw the ball anywhere near them and they'll catch it. Mm. Like, like tiny, for example, I could throw it to him and you and I are about three or four feet apart and I could throw it at hundred mile now. He'd catch it yep. with James. I had to put it on a plate and put a napkin on it and hand it to him for him to catch it. So it, it had, I had to adjust the way I played because of that, which made me a better player. Uh, but he was just fantastic. But having players like that and, and we were really, really good. We were we still weren't right up where we needed to be, um, but we were pretty good and we were getting better. And the better we got, the better the crowds got, the better that all of a sudden people started to come in and sponsor us. You know, the sponsorship got better. The media coverage got better. You know, and it's that chicken and egg, which comes first and it's always hard. But ultimately, if you are successful as a club on field or on court, 
then people will be interested. And that's what we did. There were times in the late 80s and early 90s where basketball rivaled football really for media coverage, didn't it? It did. Well, at one stage, we were well and truly the hottest ticket in town, mm. over and above the Eagles yep. by a long way because the Eagles came in you know, later on. But um, we would get far more coverage on the West, on the news than what the Eagles would get. And, you know, we'd moved in 90, we moved to the entertainment center. Yep. And I still remember, you know, there were lineups. I did the same thing. We walked in there and went 8,000 people. How the hell are we going to fill this one? Opening game sold out. Um, and I remember playing finals at there and there was a line that went twice around the entertainment center to get tickets for the playoff games. You know, that's how special it was. And that's what it was about. And the Eagles were struggling at that stage. You know, obviously that changed in a, a fairly short space of time, but yeah, we were definitely the the team to be seen in the in the Perth and in Perth, and it was the place to be, which got away a little bit from my roots, which are knowing everybody. I talked about the first game, knew everybody in the stadium. I couldn't tell you half the people in the stadium, you know, then because they weren't basketball people. They were people that wanted to go and watch some entertainment, and basketball was just a byproduct of that. You mentioned run, stun, have some fun. Was did Cal coach that way because that suited the team or it suited the need to sell the product to the public, do you think? Both. I think first and foremost, it was a need to sell the product, but you couldn't do that if you didn't have the team to do it. Mm. So we'd kind of recruited around that. So it changed the way that a lot of our local guys had to play, um, which was fine. We were okay with that. And we were okay with that because it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was great. We'd get out, we'd run and we'd, we'd have a bit of fun. And um, it was an exciting way to play and the crowd got involved and uh, yeah, it just, it was just a spectacular time in, in basketball for us. You made finals very, was that 87? 87. 87. Yep. And Brian Curl's mob, yep. he was in Brisbane. Correct. I think. And they knocked you over two nil in the finals. I actually yep. remember listening to the second game out, outside of the darkened pub. Yeah. My old school mate, Ned Cozen was calling the game <laughs> on the ABC, I think. Yep. And um, with maybe Greg Keeley. Um, how tough were they, the the Brisbane Bullets back in those days? Yeah, they were very good. We uh, eighty seven, we finished fifth, but we got through to the grand final. We played Brisbane, um, and we played the first game we played was out at well, sorry, yeah, we played one game here because it yep. was a three game series. First game here, second and third game, if it went to three, was in Brisbane. We lost here in a in a nail biter. Went over there, and they were playing at a new entertainment centre called Boondle, Boondle. Yeah. and that's about thirty minutes out of the city, but. That game, that first grand final game, we set at that time the new Australian indoor sporting attendance record. Uh, there was 13,850-odd people there. It was unbelievable. The The atmosphere in that place was phenomenal. If I wasn't playing, I would have enjoyed it more, you know. But <laughs> um, but unfortunately, they just they just kicked their butt. They, yeah. uh, they really did. And I remember sitting in the locker room, and there's there's a photo that I've got at home, which is a photo of the locker room. And I'm on one side and my brother, Glenn, who was playing at the time, is sitting on the floor, knees up, head in his knees. And, you know, that's the perfect picture of, you know, just total disappointment. And I remember we made a pact as a team that we said, you know what? We're never going to feel like this again. This is rubbish. We, if we're going to get there, we're going to get there and we're going to win it. You know, we're not going to do that again. So um, I suppose that really inspired us to, to work harder and do more and, uh, ultimately, it did, did get to that point. And when we won our first championship, coincidentally enough, it was against Brisbane, in Brisbane, 
at Boondle. Yep. What was that like? That must have been a seminal moment for you as the, the inaugural captain. You were still captain at yep. that stage. I think we're talking about 1990, Correct. aren't we? Correct, yep. Um, Cal was still coach at that point? Yeah, controversially, yes. So Alan Black uh, was coach at that time. Yep. My brother Glenn, um, we don't have time now, but he had a serious um, skiing incident Um back in 87, which ended his playing career. Mm. Um, but he was an assistant coach to Alan. Um, Alan had coached in 89 and 90 or start of 90. And then after two games, he was sacked. And then Cal took over and Cal coached the rest of the team. And we got through and we ended up winning the championship. So he was, he was still heavily involved at that point. Uh, but that was fantastic. That was, you know, retribution basically from our perspective to do it at Boondle. And, uh, it was, it was phenomenal. It wasn't easy though. It took three games Yep. and, uh, it was, it was tough. It was, it was an unbelievable feeling, but to get to that point, I still remember the elation of, you know, the final siren going and, uh, and the realization of that was like, that was nine years, nine years of, uh, really nine, 10 years of, of hard work to finally get there. And, climb that mountain, as they say, and, and be able to lift that trophy up, which my back's never been the same, I might add. It was a big trophy. It was a big trophy, that one, wasn't it? It was. None <laughs> of the pussies these days pick up the big one. They just pick up the little one. So, um, yeah, but I think the adrenaline was all there because it was just like, what the hell? This is fantastic. So it was it was an unforgettable feeling. Um, they were formidable too, weren't they? The Bulls oh, at yeah. that stage. Um, was Loggins there at yeah, that stage? Yeah, Leroy was there. Yeah, Leroy, Emery Atkinson. Um, yeah, they, uh, Derek Rucker, yep. you know, they were, they were phenomenal. They were a very, very good team. So, and there was a bit of history there cause Cal had been at Brisbane playing under Curly and they'd had a big fallout and all that. And Curly was coaching. Yep. So there was this real, you know, this real viable tension in the air about it as well, which made it even better. Yeah. Tell us about your last year in 1992, cause you, you played up until that point. What yep. happened then? That happened then. So what happened is in 91, um, they brought in a new coach, all right? The famous thing for Cal, Cal wanted to be the coach and the manager uh, or the general manager. And um, he made the fatal mistake of saying, well, I'm looking forward to um, going head to head with Kerry Stokes. You don't win that one very often. <laughs> like, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it was his fatal mistake. So he ended up, so they got a new coach in. The guy's name was Murray Arnold and he was a coach from overseas. He was a US guy, came in. Um, and he decided in his infinite wisdom that he wanted to play younger guys. And I guess he's looking at, you know, continuity and, you know, um, concession plan, uh, you know, all that sort of procession planning and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's fine. Um, but my argument was always that I'm happy to give up my spot to somebody else if they're better than me, mm. but if they're not better than me, blood them, let them learn. Don't just hand them a spot. And that's what he did. So him and I had a few um, tales, uh, a few arguments between what he believed I was av- uh, able to do and what he believed I was able to do, um, which didn't go out well. We had um, a couple of uh, news reports that came out and we had one sensational headline that came out, which actually, surprisingly enough, and you worked for <laughs> you were Hopefully I didn't write newspaper. it, <laughs> It wasn't you, Mark, fortunately, because otherwise we would have had a different conversation. <laughs> but um, it, it came out with this big headline, you know, clash over Ellison coach clash and blah, blah, blah. And then when you read the story, no correlation to that whatsoever, but it came out. So that really caused some dramas. And 
ultimately, he just stopped playing me. He didn't want me to play, you know. Um, and we would have gone back to back to back. We would have gone for the three-peat that year. But um, in Murray's infinite wisdom, as I said, he decided not to play me. Now, I might be a bit big-headed, but I reckon I could have helped the team. And we lost a semi-final game to the Andrew Gaze Melbourne Tigers, Tigers yeah. by two points. Right, we win that game, we win and we go and play in the grand final and we would have won the grand final. I did I played like two minutes in that game. Mm. Now I know I've played on Andrew Gaze since he was he wasn't ever little but young. Um and I know that I could have had more than a two point impact on that game in one way or the other. Mm. Um so I was pretty pretty pissed after that game. I actually ripped the doors off the hinges in the locker room at Melbourne Entertainment Centre, um, which I never got the bill for, which was pretty good um, after that game. And then we went on to the third game and lost, and that was it. We were done. Um, and then after that, I had asked management if Murray was still going to be coaching the next year, and they said yes. I said, all right, well, I'll retire um, because I said, I don't want to be the guy that sits on the end of the bench and, you know, is there. If he doesn't think I can play, then I'll retire. I personally think I still had two or three more years left in me. I really do. Um, but I made that decision. It was a bloody hard decision to make. I've got to tell you, but I thought, well, if he wants to play the young guys, I'll pave the way and let him do it. So I retired. And then a couple of months after that, they sacked him, which really pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll take a break and we'll talk about life post Wildcats still involved in basketball very heavily. This is inspiring sports stories brought to you by Barrett and O'Day. We're talking to Mike Ellis. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Mike Ellis and we're up to a point where Mike has just left the Wildcats in less than ideal circumstances. <laughs> That's um, Mike, you mentioned that when you started, it was an amateur sport. What sort of money were you earning when you finished? How professional was it? Um, not very. Right. The, uh, I think the most I ever earned was about 40 grand right. for a year. Now, so that still was, semi-professional. That was a, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, my wife and I had a jewellery store. Uh, well, I had my name on it, but she was the one who ran it, obviously, uh, because I needed to try and earn a living somehow because basketball wasn't paying it, you know, and yep. yet you had guys like the import guys that were on ridiculous money back in those days. So, and I think it's, it's something that happens quite regularly where loyalty isn't actually rewarded. It's been taken the other way. He's not going to go anywhere, so we don't need to pay him anything. And I think that was a factor for me. Uh, and probably for a couple of the other guys, which was disappointing. But Mark, we never did it for the money. That's the point. Mm. You know, I never did it for the money. Um, if that was the case, I would have stopped a long, long time ago. I probably wouldn't have even started. So that's, that's the difference these days. I look at the players and, you know, all this rubbish that you get about load management and all this sort of, I'm just like, God, we used to play seven days a week and, you know, we never seemed to have those injuries and we played a lot more. And, and I got to tell you, it was way more physical back those days mm. than what it is these days. So this whole load management thing is all about protection of their careers and their money. And I understand that. I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. Um, so 
So it's not about really protecting the player. It's protecting their longevity in the sport, no matter what sport it is. You know, you see it, you'd see it, you know, you're a football man. You see it with the, the guys that are protected from football, you mm. know, regularly. It's, it's all about protecting them because they're on a truckload of money, you know, and they need to be able to perform at a level. But if you're not playing, how are you performing? How are you earning that money? But that's just my, you know, it's a philosophical argument that I would have with many people, but you know, that's just the way it is. You continued to play at um, Sterling Senators. You went yep. back there. Yeah, I did. Well, funnily enough, I actually still worked for the Wildcats. Yep. So whilst I was um, retired as a player, I stayed on for two years as a development manager. So I was working with kids and, and the younger players that were coming through to try and get them into the Cats. And then I got into management, admin side of stuff. And I went into that side of it. So then I ended up becoming, uh, you know, I ended up becoming GM and I ended up becoming player manager and then I became an assistant coach and then became a coach. Yep. So I was with the club technically for 23 years. It wasn't like I finished after 11. So I still stayed on. So, um, yeah, so that's, I was there for quite a while. Enjoy coaching? Yeah, I loved coaching. Really loved coaching. You know, it's a lot of fun. Um, it has its moments, you know, there's a lot of stress that goes with it. Um, and the other part of it is if I had a choice between being a player and a coach, I'll be a player any day Yeah. because coaching takes up way more time. There's far more stress. And whilst you can have an influence by telling people what to do, you can't influence the game personally or physically yourself because you're not actually out there. That's and that's the hard bit. Sense of no control. Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, how would the Wildcats teams of those early 90s, with all those big names, how would they go against the Wildcats team today, do you think? Yeah, so that gets thrown around a lot. And I might be biased, but I still think that the teams from the early 90s would still stand up against any team in the league. Now, I can tell you now, right, right at this point in time, we didn't have the same athletes. Yep. They are much better athletes now but I think we were a lot smarter players. Um, we had to be because we didn't have that athleticism to get us out of trouble. But I also think, and I mentioned it earlier on, we were far more physical back then. Mm. If we were allowed to play now the way we played back then, we would beat any other team because we'd beat the crap out of them, <laughs> <laughs> to be brutally frank. So, you know, it's it, just the way it was. You know, you yeah. had guys like, you know, like I said, Pinder, Vlahov, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, a, a number of guys like that. Pete Hansen, you know, these guys are big, massive, strong, physical guys. They traded weight too. Oh, you know? they did. They yeah. did. Like as a guard, I would cut through the keyway. And by the time I got from one side to the other, and that's only three or four meters, I would get hit at least four times yeah. by these guys, just nailing it every time you go through the keyway. You do that now, it's a foul. You yeah. can't do it. You can't play. So... Again, it's about protecting the athlete. I understand that, but it's just a different way it's played. Footy's exactly the same. You know, yeah. you look at the bumps that they used to do, you know, Lee Matthews, those sorts of things, they, uh, Johnny Warsfold, those things that happen, you could never do that. You'd be rubbed out. Mm. You'd be absolutely rubbed out. So it's just a different way. It's, it's the evolution of the sports. It's just where, the way it is. Do you like the state of Australian basketball now? Are you happy with it? Yes, I do. I do. I think... We are now on the world stage. You know, we are looked at by the NBA as a breeding ground for players 
to get to the big league. And that is no mean feat in itself. And then any number of players that we've had that have come through now and are playing in the NBA, you know, um, are because of the level of the league. And that what that does is it only strengthens the league because it also it attracts better players as well. And to me, it, it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's in a great, great position right now. Is uh, Giddy potentially the best player we've had? Yeah. Josh is an interesting one. He is a, he is a very, very good player. Um, but I don't know that he's the greatest player we've ever had. Right. Um, and, and it's a bit subjective too, because what's the greatest player? Josh isn't a scorer. You know, Andrew Gaze was a ridiculous scorer, but never played defense. You know, Josh Giddy uh, was, is, is just a great all round player. Mm. Um, but is he the best we've ever had? I don't know. You'd have to say it's pretty hard to go past Luke Longley, who's still won three NBA championships until Josh does that. Yep. Then it's hard to make that comparison. So it's really subjective. It really is because they're all different players in their own way and the way in which they go about their job. But Josh is a phenomenal player. And I mean, he's still so young. What is he? 20, yeah, you know, 19 or 20. He's just getting started. So, you know, the future is very, very bright for that young man. Your son Cody played NBL, played yep. uh, a lot of games, 202 centimetres. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I don't get the pool cleaned anymore, mate. So that's, a, <laughs> that's a question that many people ask. Where did that come from? Yeah, so my, my wife keeps telling me that I've got to stop saying that because people start to believe him. Soon, so. Yeah, I don't know. He just, yeah, he was always big from a, the time he was born. He was massive and fortunately he had a head like a watermelon. So fortunately he grew into that, which was handy. But yeah, he uh, he ended up, you know, he went to the Institute of Sport and then went to college, played over in the U.S. and then came back and played over 100 games in the in the NBL for Sydney and for Illawarra. And, uh, yeah, look, I guess I was always disappointed that the Wildcats never went after him. Uh, there's no father-son rule like there is in footy, yep. um, which would have been nice to have him play here. But the other part of that, too, is if he plays here, is he playing because he's Cody Ellis or is he playing because he's my son? Mm. And I'd hate that to have been the case. So... He, he forged his own path and, you know, I really admire him for that, you know. Um, and then he got to the point where, again, money was at a stage where he's got a young family. He didn't want to keep bouncing his family all around the countryside. So he decided that, uh, you know, it was time for him to stop and, and he just plays locally now. So, um, yeah, so he's still, he's in Perth with his wife and son, my grandson, my first and only grandson at the moment. One more before I let you go. How would Bryce Cotton stack up against the guns from your era, do you think? Yeah, Bryce is, is a phenomenal player. I think even back in those days, uh, with the athleticism that he has, even though he's little, because you know he's only, he's only our height. Yep. You're the same size as me. He's only our height, but I reckon we both outweigh him by about, you know, 20 kilos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he'd still stack up. I really do. He would not probably score at the same level that he does now because of the physicality, but he would still be able to stack up. He, he is a very, very phenomenal player. I would love to have played with him. I loved playing with Ricky Grace. I would love to have played with Bryce. It would have been an, an absolute honor. Mike Ellis, congratulations on your career. Congratulations on your life. It's a, it's a life well lived, and you've been part, I think, of a sports boom within a nation, which is an incredibly special thing to be a part of. Uh, and thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks. My pleasure, mate. 
This has been Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEN. Thanks to Bower and O'Day, and we've been talking to Mike Ellis. Bower and O'Day, don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.